Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for its clarity. We thank you, Lord, for its accuracy. We thank you, Lord, for its ultimate and final inerrancy. We thank you, Lord, that whatever it is that you say to us, we can believe it with absolute confidence. And we thank you, Lord, that in your word, you give us the assurance and the hope of one day rising from the dead and walking this earth again. You did this through the sending of your son to die on the cross. And we just praise you this morning, Father. And we say thank you for that ultimate sacrifice that he gave. As we look at your word this morning, Father, we pray that your spirit would illuminate the text before us. We pray, God, that as we reflect upon this encounter that Jesus has with the Sadducees, that Jesus would encounter each of us fresh again this morning with the promise that we will live again. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith and remind us of this everlasting hope. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Checkmate. Now, as soon as I said that, a whole bunch of heads kind of popped up like, whoa. If you're a chess player, you know that is the most dreaded word that you can hear. It signals the end of the chess match. Chess isn't like any other type of board game that you might play. It doesn't require dice. It's not based on chance or making a certain number of moves around a board. Chess is ultimately a game of strategy. And in the game of chess, you have the option of choosing each move. Both, both positions are equally weighted. Both, both players on the chessboard have the same pieces that they start out with, the same amount of moves available. Each chess player is going to go against each other in a competition of wits and intellect. And you own every single move. And one of the things I love about the game of chess is that it gives the opposing player every opportunity to win. The move right before the final game-ending move, known as checkmate, you have to declare check. You have to let the person know that the game is about to be over, that you have them locked squarely in your sights. They have to be able to see it, to know that you're about to take them out, so as to give them one more opportunity to get out of checkmate, to preserve the game, to continue on in the fight. We don't like to hear the word check, much less the word checkmate, if you're a chess player. What's even more unusual is to encounter a strategist of any form that would call checkmate on himself before the game has even really begun. And yet that's what we find here with the Sadducees. They hold to this belief that there is no life after death, that there is no resurrection, which is very, very peculiar because every society and every culture, it doesn't matter what part of the world you're from, and the truth is it doesn't matter a great deal what religion you cling to, even outside of Christianity. Every society, every civilization, and every culture, and most every religious belief has some idea of an afterlife, has some idea of a continuation, an existence beyond this existence that we know. This is understood from the pharaohs of Egypt who were built in their towering pyramids with their wives and their uh, possessions and much of their wealth and the idea that when they rose to the afterlife, they would take all of those things with them. You encounter this in Native American tribes in which warriors are often understood to be buried even with their horses and their bows and arrows so that when they rise to the next life, they'll be ready to go on another hunt. And you encounter it here with the Jews. 
This is unmistakably their theology. This is unmistakably their belief. They hold to the idea that there will be a resurrection, and based upon their understanding of the scriptures, they know that Messiah, in some way, in some shape, in some form, he is the key to affecting that resurrection. The Pharisees believe it. The Pharisees teach it. And because of the Pharisees' belief in this, as soon as a country bumpkin from a little town of Nazareth, whom is widely suspected to be born in some form of illegitimate conception, some illegitimate marital arrangement, starts making himself out to be the Messiah, they're right there on it. Because this is the key to their theology. While the Pharisees routinely are going to be following Jesus around all throughout his earthly ministry, while the Pharisees are routinely coming after him, asking him questions because he's challenging their spiritual authority, one group of individuals is noticeably absent, namely the Sadducees. They're not pestering Jesus with questions. They're not constantly from the word go haunting and dogging his every step. They largely don't care. The only time you really see these guys show up is right here during the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And undoubtedly it is because on Tuesday, the day before, he cleansed the temple. And he's done this on multiple occasions now. And the temple is where the Sadducees' domain properly belongs. You see, we have these two groups. We've got the Pharisees, who are more the theologians of the common man. And then you have this upper echelon, this upper religious group known as the Sadducees. And I'm going to give you a little helpful mnemonic so you can distinguish between these two. Pharisees hold to a strict interpretation of the scriptures. They're the legalists. They are, what I would say, fairer to the text than the Sadducees are. So the Pharisees are fairer to the word of God than the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't accept most of the books of the Old Testament. They only accept the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books written by Moses. And because they don't find anywhere in those first five books, as far as their interpretation is concerned, they don't find anywhere in those first five books any mention of the resurrection, they say there's no resurrection. And because there's no resurrection, well, they're, they're sad, you see. That's why they're called Sadducees. That might help to keep these two groups kind of differentiated in your minds. The Pharisees, the legalists, a little bit fairer with the text, although they have their own abuses of the word of God. And the Sadducees who reject any kind of an idea of a resurrection. And so you'd think they'd be depressed. They reject any idea of the resurrection. And as a result, that gives them license to live life largely however they want to live it. Unlike the Pharisees, they're the upper echelon, they're the aristocrats, they're, they're a part of the leading group of religious rulers in Jerusalem. They have total authority and total control over what happens in the temple. They're the ones that collect, that make the big money off of the buying and the selling and the trading of the different sacrificial animals that goes on in the temple Jesus, for the most part, is challenging the religious teaching and the religious interpretation of the Pharisees from day one. They're always on his case. The Sadducees largely ignore him. But when he comes to Jerusalem and he overturns the temples and there is this group of people that are beginning to chant, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, now we have a little bit of a problem. You see, he's interfering with the Sadducees' ability to make their money. And if this group of, this ragtag group, this mob continues to chant, Hosanna, son of David, even though the Sadducees don't believe in any kind of a messianic figure themselves, 
if this guy, if this Jesus gets enough of a following and he creates an insurrection, that's going to upset the folks back in Rome. And then the Romans are going to have to come in and squash that rebellion. And you see, these guys sit at a perfect crossroads. They like Rome. They like their position. Rome gives them authority. They're allowed to collect money. They don't have any strenuous type of jobs that they have to look after. They're, they're in charge. If this guy creates problems and Rome comes in and has to settle matters, it might be problematic for these guys. So even though they have no love for the Pharisees, even though they've largely up until this point been indifferent to the ministry of Christ because of what Jesus is doing, they're going to come and they're going to begin to challenge him. They're going to challenge him with their pet doctrine. There is no resurrection. They're going to challenge him with an argument that they have that is a Trump argument. Ultimately, what they hold to is something that you and I don't hold to, something that the Jews didn't hold to, by far and large, they hold to the idea that there's no resurrection. Anytime you're playing a board game or a chess match, and at the very opening move of the chess match, the player opposite you quits, it's because of two reasons. Either they're hopeless that they can win the chess match, they have no hope that they'll be successful and they want to just get it over with or they want to play a different game. If you quit the game at the beginning, it's because of one of two reasons. You're hopeless or you want to play some other game. And so as we look at Jesus' teaching here this morning, I want you to be asking yourself this question. If you struggle with the idea of a resurrection, how do you find hope to get up in the morning? Number one. And if you struggle with the implications of resurrection, number two. Are you living life the way the Lord would have you to live life? Or are you playing some other game? Let's look at the text. It begins, verse 23, that same day. Remember, this is Wednesday. This is the day after he's cleansed the temple. It's Wednesday. On Friday, Jesus is going to have Passover. Uh, Sorry, I beg your pardon. Thursday evening, Jesus is going to have Passover. And then on Friday, he's going to be crucified. Two days after that, on the third day, Sunday, Jesus is going to be raised from the grave. But here we are on Wednesday. The Pharisees have already come and challenged him on paying taxes to Caesar, whether or not that's right. Now they have lost. Jesus has confounded them. Now the Sadducees come, and they come with their trick question. The text begins, the same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, verse 24, saying, teacher, now this is mockery. They don't really think this guy knows what he's talking about. They don't necessarily believe that he's the Messiah. They've rejected all of that, but in fake admiration, they say to him, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and the third, down to the seventh. Now, they make the statement in verse 25, there were seven brothers among us. This is based on what we would know as a leveret law, leveret law of marriage. 
It's found in Deuteronomy 25. Don't flip there, but it's found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. And essentially what the law taught was that if a man marries a woman, and if that man dies having produced no son, no child to carry on his name, and he had a brother who was unmarried, the obligation of the law was that his unmarried brother was to marry his widow and to produce offspring by her. The firstborn son from that marriage was to take the name of the previous husband who had passed away to preserve his name in Israel. This was done for a number of reasons. It was done to preserve the memory and the name of all of the inhabitants of Israel, all the people of Israel that was to carry on throughout the history of Israel. It was done also as an economic means to preserve the inheritance and the tribal allotments that God had given to these people. It's the clear command of Moses. Now that is in the book of Deuteronomy. It's within the Pentateuch. It's what they accept. But now they have a rather unusual situation. Now, whether or not this is a hypothetical situation or whether or not this actually happened, there has been much debate. Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, he suggests that this is ludicrous because if a man married a woman and he died, okay, maybe brother number two would marry the woman, but if he died, sooner or later, brother, thir- brother number three's got to wake up and be like, I don't know, this woman's kind of, this is a dangerous proposition here. I, I, there might be another way, I'm not sure. Chrysostom is quite certain that this is... Uh, perhaps a totally hypothetical situation. But the Sadducees say, quote, in verse 25, there were seven brothers among us. So there's sort of this idea from the text that the Sadducees are trying to create the notion, at least in their public dispute with Jesus, this is a real situation. We're not, we're not playing mind games here. This is something that's really happening among us. Now, whether or not we can trust the Sadducees, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we can take them at their word here. But they're wanting to create the idea that this is not hypothetical, this is not mere intellectual argument, this is a real issue. Seven brothers, seven brothers, and one by one, each of them married this woman, and they apparently never clued into the fact that they were dying like flies with her. So you come down to the seventh brother, and he dies having borne no children. And here's their question. They say, Jesus, if it is true that there's a resurrection... If it is true, as you say and as the Pharisees say, that we're going to one day rise from the grave, that we will walk this earth again, well, who, whose husband is she going to be with? Which of the seven brothers is she going to be married to? And this is their Trump question. Because they would pose this question to the Pharisees and it would go back and forth and the Pharisees are scratching their head. That's a great question. We're not sure. And here's Jesus' response. I love his answer. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong. No beating around the bush. No, well, let's just kind of talk about this, kind of easing them into it. Simple, straight, clear, unambiguous, no mincing his words, no reading between the lines. You are wrong. Why are you wrong? Two reasons given. Number one, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures. You do not actually know the Bible as well as you think you do. Number one. Number two, you are wrong because you do not know the power of God. He's going to respond to both of those in reverse order. He says in verse 30, in the resurrection, talking about the power of God. 
and what he means by that. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. Now this is a shocking statement. The power of God, as Jesus treats it here, is that in the resurrection, which he just assumes that there will be a resurrection, he doesn't go back and forth and engage in these word games. No, no, really, I think there's going to be a resurrection. In the resurrection, here's what's going to happen. They're going to be like the angels in heaven. They're not going to be marrying nor given in marriage. They'll be like the angels. Where does this come from? You don't find this anywhere in the Old Testament. There's a number of books uh, that are written during the intertestamental period, but between the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. These are apocryphal works dealing with the time of the Maccabees. If you look at those books, there's no mention of it in there either. If you look at the rabbinical writings, if you look at all the extra-biblical teachings that are offered throughout the history of Israel, no rabbi has suggested this. Where does Jesus come up with this statement? He makes this statement based on a lack of, of a statement that in the resurrection things will be a certain way. You see, Jesus is able to say, number one, because he's God, because he's omniscient, and also because the Bible doesn't actually say what we will be like in the resurrection, that the assumption that you guys are making that in the resurrection we're going to carry on with married life, that we're going to carry on with our wives just as we are now, that is a fallacious argument. That is a gross assumption on your part because the Bible never says that that's how it's going to be. There's no statement that in the resurrection, we're going to carry on married. Rather, he concludes, we'll be like the angels. Now, Jesus can say that because he's the son of God, and he knows definitively. And so out of his deity, he speaks authoritatively. But their assumption that what happens in this life must necessarily be exactly what we encounter in the life to come is without merit. You don't find that anywhere in the scriptures. Jesus' response is the power of God will cause humanity to be different, to be transformed, to be changed, which is a logical conclusion. We marry, husbands and wives get together, and within that sanctioned relationship within the scriptures, children are produced, children grow up, children grow old, and as the parents, so the children, eventually we all die. The idea of the resurrection is that death is reversed, that aging is stopped, which would mean that the biblically sanctioned means for procreation would also change. Now, some unfortunate husbands among us sometimes look at this passage and they conclude, I don't have to be with my wife anymore. Hallelujah. I'm sure you've heard the joke of the couple that came in for marriage counseling and the pastor was trying to get them to acknowledge exactly what the difficulties were and finally the spouse, after going back and forth for a period of time, says, well, he doesn't want to be with me anymore. And the pastor looks at the gentleman and he says, that is not true. I am committed to being with her until we die. And she says, yeah, but he keeps talking about this promise found in Matthew 22, and the pastor's kind of befuddled, and he says, what, what promise in Matthew 22? What are you talking about? He says, well, pastor, the thing that I hold to, 
that makes our marriage tick is the promise of God that in the resurrection we will not be married. Now, unfortunately, some husbands will say that. Some wives will say that too, for that matter. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. This will be over when I die. That's unfortunate. God has called us to love our wives, to, for wives to love their husbands. You know that sometimes those relationships don't always bring joy, but that is God's intention and design. Others, on the other hand, they want to rush into marriage because they're convinced that the resurrection is going to happen and they're going to miss out on marriage. That's, you, should, you should be eager for marriage. That's a good thing. The scriptures teach us, though, that life will change in the resurrection. And it's not to suggest that you're not to love your spouse in the resurrection. It's not to suggest that somehow you'll be free from the commitment of love. Love will be greater. Love will be deeper. Love will be more perfect in the resurrection. Some are grieved at the notion that in the resurrection we won't still be together. You know, that sounds tragic. We want to stay together forever. That's a wonderful, wonderful love. But understand that in the resurrection, that love will only be magnified. It will only be extended. The relationship will be different because your existence will be different, but that is not to suggest that the love and the affection will ever go away. Jesus' first statement to the Pharisees is, you just don't understand the power of God. It will be different in the resurrection. You don't understand the power of God because you don't understand the scriptures. These are individuals who have rejected much of the Old Testament, holding only to the Pentateuch, holding only to the first five books of Moses. Well, within the first five books of Moses, they theorize that there's no definitive teaching on the resurrection, therefore we are free to reject it, meaning this life is the only life that there is. Jesus is about to confront them in their misreading of the Pentateuch. It makes the statement, verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said by God? It's there. It's in ink. It's on the page, written in black letters on a white scroll. Now, these guys know their Bible, their first five books at any rate. Jesus is about to say, you're reading it, but you're not seeing it. You're reading it, but you're not leaning on the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text before you. Go back and read it again with fresh eyes and hear Christ's interpretation. He's going to quote to them a statement that they would have known instantly where it came from. Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Don't flip there. I'll remind you of the event. Moses has gone out into the wilderness. He's been understood to be a murderer in Egypt, so he has fled from Egypt. He's now a wandering shepherd out in the wilderness, and God comes to Moses in the form of a burning bush. A bush out in the desert, a little scrub bush, we're not sure what kind of bush it is, begins to burn, and yet it is not consumed. Moses observes this, and he says, I'm going to turn aside and see this great sight. It's phenomenal, a bush on fire, not actually burning. And as he approaches the bush, Moses calls out to, sorry, God calls out to Moses from the bush, and he says, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. And Moses says, who are you? And God says, I am the God. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. 
they go back and forth and they have this discussion and Moses, God asks Moses to go back to Egypt and begin to lead his people out. Moses says, who do I say sent me? And God comes back to him again with that simple present tense verb. Say to them that I am who I am has sent you. The great I am. Now the whole context is important in understanding what Jesus is getting at. You see, you and I, the way that we live life, we expend energy. There's a process that we go through. In the process of living, we age. In the process of growing up, we expend energy, and we only have so much of it, and there is a point fixed for all of us. There is a moment coming in which, unless the resurrection happens first, unless the rapture happens, we're going to die. In the process of living, we're using up the resources that God has given us, and in the using up of those resources, we are approaching death. And that's the way it is all around us. Anytime you use up a resource, any type of a resource, whether it be a financial resource, whether it be your time, these are limited things. And when we use them, we expend them. Moses observes a bush burning on fire, but the bush is not consumed. Somehow the fire is producing its own energy. Somehow the fire is coming up with its own heat, and yet it's not drawing upon the bush for fuel. It's giving heat, it's giving light, it's producing energy, and it's not taking anything. Alexander McLaren, commenting on this passage, makes the wonderful statement, one of the best statements I've ever read. As God is speaking to Moses, he says, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I am that I am. I am the great I am. That is to say, the fire that burns and yet does not burn out which has no tendency to destruction in its very energy. It is not consumed by its own activity. It is surely a symbol of the one being whose ultimate being derives its law and its source from himself alone, who only can say, I am that I am. The law of his nature, the foundation of his being, the only conditions of his existence being, as it were, totally enclosed within the limits of his own nature. You and I have to say, I am that which I have become, or I am that which I was born, or I come from that family which I was born into, adopted into, raised in. I am in that circumstances, I am from those circumstances which have made me, and yet God says, I am that I am. All other creatures are links. This is the staple from which we all hang. All other being is derived and therefore limited and changing, but this being, he is underived. He is absolute. He is self-dependent and therefore unalterable forevermore. Because we live, we die. In living, the process is going on of which death is the ultimate end. But God lives forevermore. A flame that does not burn out. Therefore, his resources are inexhaustible. His power unwearied. He needs no rest for recuperation of wasted energy. His gifts diminish not the store which he has at his disposal from which he can bestow. He gives, and yet he is none the poor for his giving. He works, and yet he is never wearied. He operates unspent. He loves, and he loves forever. And through the ages, the fire burns on and never consumes. 
in the demonstration of the bush, God is showing forth to Moses his power. Christ's first condemnation to them is, you don't know his power, and you don't know the scriptures. In misreading this account, in misunderstanding what the flame truly represents, they have misunderstood the statement which comes forth from the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Present tense. Jesus is going to conclude for us in Matthew 22. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Therefore, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. And he gives no explanation. So you might miss it, but here's the, here's the catch. It's in the present tense. God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham once upon a time. I hope someday once again to be the God of Jacob. That's not what he says. The eternal, all-powerful, unconsuming, life-giving, unchanging, inexhaustible God, he says, I am their God. If he is, and he is their God, because he is currently their God, that means that they're not dead. That means that they haven't slipped off into some destructive state forever lost to history. He is in this moment God. Because he is, that means they are too. And because he is, and he is their God, that means they are somewhere, and they live in him. Jesus says to them, you've missed it because you didn't get the power of God, and you missed it because you didn't understand the word of God. He is Church, the doctrine of the resurrection is mentioned in the way that our God speaks to Moses in terms of the grammar that he uses. The first thing we need to draw out of this passage as we consider this text this morning, and I have high school English and grammar teachers who are about to roll over in their graves once they hear Joshua Clay can't make this statement but we need to pay attention to things like grammar and syntax. When I speak to you, I am sometimes wrong, sometimes mistaken, but when God speaks to you, he employs grammar and syntax in a perfect way to communicate perfectly to you. So when we read the word of God, we need to pay attention to things like verb tense. We need to pay attention to things like prepositions, subjects, objects, those things actually matter. Again, I have English teachers somewhere that will be rolling over in their graves to hear me say that. I was not the best high school student, but God began to convict me because Jesus' doctrine of the resurrection comes from a verb tense, the simple verb of being, I am. He builds it on that, which means that if Jesus places that kind of confidence in the word of God, then that means you and I, we also need to place that kind of confidence in the word of God. It means not glossing over paragraphs, not glossing over entire chapters, but looking at every word, looking at the structure of every sentence and really asking ourselves the question, what does the Father say to us through this? Number two, the question that we have to ask ourselves, knowing that this is not the end of the game, 
knowing that this life is not lived in a state of check, waiting for the inevitable checkmate, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we have hope? In 1992, there was a man by the name of Stephen Page. He essentially left a suicide note telling the world that he was hopeless. On Thursday, January 28, 1992, after months of what seemed to be never-ending arguments with his wife. In frustration, he took a 12-gauge shotgun and he killed her. He scooped up his three-year-old daughter and he went to the Golden Gate Bridge over the San Francisco Bay. When police officers observed him and noticed that he was acting strangely, they began to approach him. When he saw them approaching... He took his three-year-old daughter and he threw her over into the San Francisco Bay and then he jumped himself. See, Satan had convinced him whatever this argument was with his wife, Satan had convinced him that it was hopeless. Satan had convinced him that he might as well go ahead and finish, finish it off. He was in a state of never-ending check. But what Jesus says to us through this text this morning is that if God is with you, and if you are leaning into him, drawing from his power and walking with him, though Satan will try to convince you that you are in a state of check and you might as well finish it off and go to checkmate, with God, there's always one move left. And for all of us, we know that the final checkmate is the checkmate that God puts upon death we will live again. In 1898, a fellow by the name of Robert Morphy was touring Europe. He was a great chess player. International grand champion. They were attending a gallery in Spain and Mr. Morphy, surprise, surprise, was drawn to a painting depicting two men playing chess. The name of the painting was The Chess Players by an artist by the name of Mortz Rich. In the painting, a man is playing chess with another man. That man is characterized as the devil. The stakes are high. The man has wagered his soul in this chess match. The artist had most graphically depicted the point in the game where it was apparent that the young man had run out of moves, that it was game over. He was in an inescapable state of checkmate. Mr. Morphy's friend wandered on throughout the museum looking at other works of art. He had lost interest, but the international grand champion chess master was drawn to the chessboard. And he stared at it for about an hour. Observers noticed as he stood and he watched that chessboard, his face grew harder and harder and harder. But after about an hour, a smile broke out. He laughed to himself and he said, Ha! There's one move left. It's not game over yet. And that's the truth for you and I when we walk with Jesus Christ. If God has the power to raise us from the dead, then surely he has the power to deliver you from whatever catastrophic situation you might find yourself in. 
Don't call checkmate on yourself. Don't quit on God. Lean in him. Find his solutions. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, your word is very clear to us this morning. Father, your son leans on your word so heavily that he derives entire doctrines from just a simple verb tense. Father, we pray, God, that we would look closely at your word as your word interprets itself to us. That we would be humble before the things that you say, that we would believe in the promises you make to us. And that in obeying those promises, Father, we would know incredible hope and incredible joy in walking with you. Father, if there are any here today who are despairing of their next move, I pray, God, that you'd reassure him that there is hope. If there are any here today who are thinking that this is the end of the road, I pray, God, you'd open their eyes to see that this is just the beginning. And for your people, Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be hopeful people who rest in your ultimate victory over death. We ask these things in Christ's name.